How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. Can we teach AI to learn from its own experiences? That's the premise behind reinforcement learning. I'm Eleni Strulia, Director of AI for Society, a signature area at the University of Alberta. One of the leading figures in AI research today is Dr. Ritz Sutton, a U of A professor who wears many hats, including working with DeepMind, the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute, and CIFAR. He literally wrote the book on reinforcement learning. Here's our host, Katrina Ingram, with Dr. Rich Sutton. Dr. Sutton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, I'm glad that you are here. And I want to start out with a story that I heard about your early interest in AI. Now, I understand that you once wrote to the legendary Marvin Minsky for some career advice. Can you share that story with us? Yes, I was uh, in high school, really, and I was trying to decide what to study when I went to college. And... Uh, yeah, I guess it was kind of a brave thing to do. I wrote to Marvin Minsky, he's the founder of our field, like one of the top one or two, and uh, asked him what to study. And I, I don't have my letter that I sent to him or a copy of it, but he wrote back and told me it didn't matter terribly much what I studied. I could study math or, or, or uh, psychology or computer science or philosophy. It didn't really matter so much as well, I should try to learn some math and try to be prepared to think independently. It's fantastic. I feel like that's get like getting career advice from Steve Jobs or something. Yeah. <laughs> but now you are a CIFAR chair. You're a pioneer of reinforcement learning. You're a legend yourself. So do you get any letters like that from young people aspiring to work in AI? And what do you tell them? Well, I do. Of course I do. And I tell them to, to think hard. Actually, I tell them the most, most important piece of advice is to write. I tell them to get a notebook and write their thoughts in it every day because you have to take your, th your own thoughts seriously. And uh, I mean, how can you expect other people to be interested in your thoughts if you aren't interested enough at least to write them down and refine them and challenge them? The other thing I tell them is that, well, no one can know everything, but everybody knows something. And if, if, if you're going to make a contribution to, um, to any scientific field, certainly to, to AI, uh, most, most often your contribution will be something that you already know, but don't realize that it's a special thing and it is a contribution. So I often tell students that their most important contribution to AI, AI will be something they already know and which they think is so, so obvious, too obvious maybe to say. Very interesting. And I, I wonder if that then, you know, links to the reflection of having the notebook so that you yeah. realize what that thing is. Exactly. Yeah. Well, circling back to your own early days as a student, you didn't start out in a traditional computer science program. You did your early work in psychology. What attracted you to that field? And how did you eventually segue into working in the area of artificial intelligence? Well, I guess I think of it as always having been the same thing, trying to study the mind trying to understand how we learn things, trying to understand how we come to understand the world and, and, and take action to achieve our goals. And this is a topic that's studied in 
in AI and it's studied in, in psychology and it's studied in economics, it's studied in control theory and operations research, it's studied in all these different areas and um, try to find the people that were most aligned with the way I was thinking. And I was thinking that learning processes, basic learning processes were important. And gosh, you know, the psychologists have thought an enormous lot about that. And they thought most deeply about perception and decision-making, learning. And so I was drawn to what they did. And aside from Ninsky, I'm also wondering who else influenced your early work back in those days? And also, what do you think the vision was for cognitive science back then? Well, this was in the 70s. I was influenced by all the animal learning theorists. I was influenced by Donald Mickey. He wrote a book on intelligence, which resonated with me. Um, I was influenced by uh, the work of, of Arthur Samuel on his checkers player, which is a famous example of an early effective learning system. In the 70s, uh, as I said, I was struck by learning and how it should play such an important role, but learning was out of fashion in AI, and it was like no one was studying it. And in order to work on it, uh, I mean, I couldn't find anyone who was interested in it in the psychology department, or in, even in the computing science department at, at Stanford University in 19, say, 70s, late 70s. It was a different time. It, was, it wasn't even expert systems yet. Expert systems became the most important thing. Knowledge-based systems became the most important thing, but learning was just totally out of favor. They felt we had to learn uh, what the mind might do before we could go on to the second problem of how you might, it might learn to do those things. It's interesting to hear you say learning was out of favor, and you mentioned expert systems. So was that the thing that was kind of taking everyone's attention and where all the funding was or where the people were or what was happening at that moment or what, what was in favor, I suppose. That's what. exactly right. Expert systems, mm. knowledge systems based on human knowledge that had been entered into them and, and then they were able to operate on that and, and perform like an expert person. Right. Well, let's talk a bit more about learning and in particular reinforcement learning, which is the area of AI that you literally wrote the textbook for. So what is reinforcement learning? How would you explain it to a non-technical person? Well, I don't think it's that it's hard because actually if, if a person thinks about learning, they'll think about reinforcement learning. They'll think about, well, like uh, you, you try something and if it works, you keep doing it. If it, if it, if it hurts, you stop. Uh, if you know, the way you might train a dog to do, to work for uh, treats of food. Um, yeah, just trying things, seeing what works. That's what reinforcement learning is. And it's odd then that, that, that most of machine learning is not about uh, reinforcement learning. Most of it is about training, learning from training sets, labeled training sets. And so it's more like learning from flashcards whereas reinforcement learning is more like learning from life and trying things and seeing what works. Really interesting. It sounds a lot more intuitive, perhaps, than some of the other machine learning methods out there. What, well, what would you say are the advantages or disadvantages of reinforcement learning? Well, it's a little funny to think of it as an advantage of one kind of, of learning over another. It's, it's a different learning problem. But what's the best way to think about it? I, I guess I think the best way to think about it is that that reinforcement learning is, is more like the overall problem that an animal or a person is faced with. And the classic machine learning, it's called supervised learning, is like a piece of that problem. What if you 
were somehow given examples. You'd have to memorize them and generalize from them. And that's a part of the overall problem that a learning agent faces, but it's, it's, a, it's more like a, a piece rather than an attempt to be the whole thing, which is more what reinforcement learning is like. Hmm. You're also known for pioneering this technique called temporal difference learning. So in basic terms, um, how does temporal difference learning work? Well, temporal difference learning is an uh, attempt to, um, it's not an attempt, <laughs> it's a class of algorithms that are really good, uh, that are specially suited for learning to make long-term predictions. Special thing about long-term predictions is that they are, they are, you tend to make sequences of them, like sequences of them. So like if you're trying to predict, you know, who's going to be the next president of the United States, who's going to win the election, um, you might make a prediction today, you might make a prediction tomorrow, some event might happen, you might revise your prediction, you make another prediction. And so you make this whole sequence of predictions all about the same event. Whenever you have something that's not an immediate prediction, you always get sequences. And so uh, when you have sequences, uh, you have a choice. You can uh, learn from what actually happens or you can learn from the sequence. But if you're playing a game of chess and you think that you're winning and then a few moves later you think that you are losing, um, you can learn from that even without uh, finishing the game. You can learn that your first estimation was too high and should have been lower. So you think, what about that algorithm? It says, take as your target uh, for, your, for one prediction the subsequent prediction. If your prediction goes up, you should move your move, you should, you should learn to predict higher, and if your prediction goes down, you should learn to predict lower. So we're looking at the, the, the difference in two predictions at different times, and that's why it's called temporal difference. Uh, that's your error, and that drives your learning. Right. So instead of kind of sticking with that original prediction that you made without um, all this new information, you're taking in all this new information and then adjusting accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit counterintuitive because you make a guess, a prediction, and then you make another guess. The next prediction, you learn one guess from the other guess, and so that makes it challenging. How does it all get tied down? It all gets tied down because eventually one of your guesses is followed by the actual outcome. Right. But most of your learning is just one guess from another guess. Yeah, it does sound very intuitive in some ways, maybe kind of like how we actually think about things. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you bring together a lot of different disciplines, um, especially in your early education, psychology, biology, computer science, and that has led to this totally new way of looking at learning systems in AI. So I'm wondering what role you see other disciplines, maybe in the social sciences or even the arts, playing in AI going forward. Well, I did grow up getting a general education, and that meant learning all the different things. And so it also means not thinking about things as divided into disciplines. It's just basic topics, and then there are many things that relate. Uh, but I think that will continue to be true, that, that you need to get insight from all the different areas. Now, as we look into the effect of AI on society, I think we'll get even more diversity of disciplines involved. Sociology, uh, different kinds of psychology, philosophy, and the arts are a part of our, the way we uh, adapt and change our culture. And all those things are going to be very important as we deal with the challenges that we, we will face. Yeah. Yeah, I, sir, I see some of that happening now. And I'm really excited by that because I, I do believe that um, 
every area has something to contribute and thinking about it more holistically just makes a lot more sense to me rather than compartmentalized. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, I think that's an interesting way that we're, we're moving things. Now, one of the big critiques that um, is out there about how we currently train AI is how much data we need. So there's masses of labeled training data sets, um, and there's a host of ethical concerns that gets tied to the use of the collection uh, and, and all of the, the data that's used in training AI. I'm just wondering how reinforcement learning, um, which seems more experiential, how does it change that dynamic when it comes to data and training AI? Well, it really changes it quite fundamentally, so much that I have a difficulty relating to the, the standard problems with supervised learning uh, for training from human data. Uh, the data that, that a reinforcement learning agent uses is the data that it generates itself. And so in some sense, it's not as, it's not the same kind of data at all. It's like you're, you're an agent, you've done some things, you've seen some things, it's your data, your experience, your life. That's what you want it to learn from. And it's not, it's also less expensive because you don't need humans to label it. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that because I've, I've, I've sort of had that thought that it might, um, take care of some of the concerns that we have when it comes to some of the ethical issues and the use of data. And so it's, I think it'll be very interesting to see where things go with reinforcement learning and, and maybe it just addresses some of those issues with this new way of training AI. Um, I wanna get into your personal story a little bit more. So let's talk about your decision to come to Alberta. What was going on for you personally and professionally when you decided to move here in 2003? I was very ill, actually. I, I, I was I'd been diagnosed with cancer, and I'd been fighting that for some time. And at the same time, AI was going through a winter, and I was working at a really wonderful uh, place in AT&T Labs. And they it was winter, and they were downsizing their lab, and they basically laid everybody off. <laughs> and and I laughed because it didn't matter to me because because I was. I was dying of cancer, and, and, and so having a job was the least of my concerns. Yeah, and so I was dying for quite a few years, when, like three years, and, and, I, and yet I hadn't quite died. <laughs> had a series of lucky breaks, and then, and then the cancer would come back. Um, but, you know, you can't lie around for too many years. You won't get, you, eventually, you want to do something again, and... Uh, you know, it really makes you wonder why we do anything. Um, so why would I want to work on AI again if I was probably going to die soon? Uh, but it sort of works that way. I don't know why we do things. Maybe we just do it out of habit. I've always worked on these problems, so I kept working on them. And I thought it'd be nice to get a job on them again. It was, it was a winter. There weren't that many jobs, but the job in Alberta was a good one. I would say there's... I always say there's, I went for the three Ps, the excellent people at the university working in machine learning and AI, uh, Jonathan Schaefer and, and uh, Rob Holty and Russ Greiner and all the rest, uh, doing lots of excellent, excellent work over the years. And what are my other Ps? Ps, the people, uh, the politics, I got to get away from the difficult politics of the U.S. This was in 2003, just as the, the U.S. was invading Iraq. And the position, the last P is position, just because they offered me a good professorship uh, with funding and full professorship, 
this is a, a dream position to walk into as an academic. Wow. That's a lot there. You mentioned quite a few things and, um, you know, just your own personal situation and kind of deciding that you still wanted to work on these problems and that you found them interesting and that you wanted to continue to make a contribution, um, which is amazing. And uh, the concept of an AI winter, which for those of us living through the times that we're in right now relative to AI, maybe aren't as familiar with, but I know there have been these periods of time where there weren't very many jobs or there weren't, um, there wasn't very much funding. Can you maybe just like share a little bit of that? Because I think you've been through a couple or you've seen a couple of winters. Yeah. And it brings us back to this question of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Things go in and out of fashion. As I said, when I was uh, in college, learning was out of fashion. Uh, then it became in fashion, then it became out of fashion. Learning AI, learning both both the overall concept of AI and the different kinds of AI have gone gone in and out of fashion at various times. Um, I think that's sort of a lesson, you know. It's we 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 like to think we're doing pure science and it's all ideas and it's all objective and stuff. But but no, it's it, what one thing I've learned and seen through my life is that it's all very um, uh, there are swings and things just become popular or unpopular without ever uh, necessarily there being good reasons for them. Yeah, um, yeah so we were, we were having a, uh, a winter or a time when AI was out of fashion. You know, people can like to say AI brought it on its, itself when it did overclaimed or maybe didn't, didn't live up to everything it had claimed. But uh, I think it's more than anything, it's, it's fashion. The swings of what people are interested in. And if you stick with something long enough, it, it comes back into fashion. Even exactly. with clothing, I've noticed that as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to dig into one of your three Ps, and that is people. And this is something that's come up with other guests. Um, and it's the role of community at the U of A. And the fact that people genuinely like working with each other here. And that's not necessarily the case everywhere, I'm told. So what's been your experience um, in community here in Alberta? And, and how has um, being part of that AI community shaped your work? Edmonton, Alberta is a friendly place for AI and maybe for all people. You know, the question is why? Why is it that Edmonton would be a, you know, a more friendly place than you would have at some of the other AI centers around the world? You know, you could say it's because we're, we're in a small city. We're not a very, um, um, I don't know, arrogant or we just, we, we're not here because we think we're like the most important people in the world. <laughs> uh, why are we friendly? I don't know. I, I jokingly say, but maybe it's true that uh, one reason we're, we're friendly because we have to, we have to work together and, and fight the cold. Yeah, I think you're right about that um, as I think about winter. <laughs> The real winter, not the AI winter, um, coming and, and being part of the Alberta dynamic. So I think there is some truth to that. Um, kind of putting the Alberta thing in perspective, though, when it comes to other places in Canada, like Montreal or Toronto, thinking about the AI research centers and the community, what do you think are the things that are, are unique to each place? And then kind of pulling back on that, what do you think is unique about Canada? Well, for one reason or another, Edmonton has ended up being a bit more skeptical, a bit more behind the times, <laughs> not, not caught up in the latest fashions. You know, maybe, we, maybe we're behind or, or maybe we're uh, like momentum or inertia 
waiting out the, the latest fads. Uh, it, it's probably uh, somewhere in between. But we've ended up being, I, I think of us as more, kind of want to say scientific, um, but more slower to, to chase after things. I guess I still haven't found a good way to express that. Uh, but I think it's true. We're worrying about more fundamental things and trying to see the bigger picture. Right. That makes us slower, but maybe if we're moving in the right direction, it's going to be okay. Yeah. And do you think that way about Canada in general, too? Or? I do feel that way about Canada in general. Uh, as you know, Canada has a different funding model where we, have, we tend to get these small grants from the from NSERC, and uh, this is the primary funding model, whereas like in the States, you have to get big, big grants, and they're like a low probability event. You, know, you have one chance in 10 of getting a big grant, whereas here you have nine chances out of 10 of getting a small grant. And uh, the system here also encourages you to, to write your grant about what you, really, what you really want to do and what you really think is important. You don't have to uh, make up some story about how it's going to be important in, in beyond the, the science. Um, I think this is what what uh, drew some of the other scientists. I think that's what partly what drew Jeff Hinton here to Toronto years and years ago. Uh, the, this the model of science is not it's not so militaristic, and it's more scientific. Right. Yeah. We're not super flashy, but we're consistent with our approach. We stick with it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you spend your time these days in a few distinct but related roles. So you're a professor at the University of Alberta. You're a fellow with AMI, the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute. And you're also a distinguished research scientist with DeepMind. And in fact, you were instrumental in DeepMind coming to Edmonton back in 2017. And, and this was a really big deal because it's the first lab outside of the UK. And it was also this pivotal moment when I think a lot of Albertans who weren't part of the, the core AI community, more of the general public, became aware that Alberta was a player in AI. So what were the events that led to the opening of this lab and what specifically is the work that takes place there? As you say it, it's really quite a step. So Edmonton, little old Edmonton has become a center of AI and it's true, it's deserving of it. You know, it came about before, it started long before I got here. Uh, the province invested um, consistently millions of dollars into machine learning AI research. Uh, Jonathan Schaefer uh, was perhaps our, our biggest name in, in gaming, computer gaming, solving checkers, and, and the gaming group was so strong. And then uh, I arrived in 2003, brought in the reinforcement learning element, and that's become, I think, a real strength of, uh, of Edmonton. I, 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 I deliberately, I would write in my proposals that I would like in, in, in the first five years to, you know, become one of the best reinforcement learning groups in the world. And maybe in the next five years to be, to be seen as such. And I think that's happened. Um, reinfor we, we've, we've, we've achieved that, but also reinforcement learning is being recognized as important. It is amazing to think that um, 
kind of hidden away in downtown Edmonton, we do have a world-class facility with a world-class team, as you say, uh, the best in the world at, yeah. at what they do. So um, yeah, it's it's great when you think about it that way. <laughs> um, now you're also involved with Amy as an Amy Fellow. How does that work fit into what you're doing? Well, it all fits together really well. I'm, <laughs> we're doing science at the at the uh, Deep Mind and at the university, and Amy um, helps us do that, and it also uh, develops the commercial side of it uh, because we have to, you know, it's a whole package really. In order to have to be really as successful as we now ambitiously hope to be, uh, we need we need the science, and we need also the uh, the companies, the entrepreneurship, the companies big and small in Edmonton. And around around Edmonton, uh, so Amy is, is about is about promoting that, and I'm you know keen to promote that. I do think of myself as primarily just a scientist, but uh, that's an important part of the picture. You know, it's if you have a good scientific base, and I think we do, that can draw in the uh, people interested in using it for applications and for companies. Right. It sounds like an ecosystem that just works together. That's right. The ecosystem. Yeah. The Edmonton AI ecosystem. <laughs> I love it. Now, there's also this national level to what you do. So you are also a CIFAR chair. What does mm -hmm. that role entail? Well, the relationship to CIFAR and to the um, federal government is, is, is and, and as we say, the Pan-Canadian AI Initiative, uh, how we managed to, uh, I should say, really, it was the the... The, the deep learning folks, the folks at, at Toronto and Montreal that, that started that, and then they brought Edmonton along uh, to um, to really make an effort in, in AI, for, for Canada to be a leader in AI and to recognize that possibility and to promote it. And uh, gosh, you know, we've been doing it. We've been doing it. I say we. Uh, yeah, we. I, I'm one of the we. You can say we. <laughs> <laughs> You're part of it. <laughs> it's it's really uh, it's really impressive what what what's been done at the Vector Institute in Toronto and the Mila Institute. So my role setting up that I, I was at the organizational meetings for setting up the Pan Canadian AI Initiative, and uh, help. I don't know. Guide is too too strong, perhaps, but be a part of guiding. Uh, that process to us to a effective conclusion that um, includes uh, science as well as as applications. And now, you know, we have to keep that going. And I'm part of uh, playing that national role of trying to sc sculpt the uh, the way it will be in the future. Right. Kind of sticking with that theme of science and applications, you're mm -hmm. someone who's spent time in both academia and industry mm -hmm. throughout your career. So I'm just wondering if you can kind of comment on the differences between the two and what roles you see each area playing as AI advances in Canada in the next few years. Well, it's it's extremely diverse. The uh, cor corporations can be the best places in the world to do research or they can be not very good ones. It all depends on the setup. We can rely on our universities to look at the fundamental issues because they're only looking at at, at ideas. Um, they're either creating ideas in research or they're passing uh, teaching ideas to students. Now, in the future or in the more recent present, it seems like uh, entrepreneurship is playing a much greater role in AI 
and and the developed pushing of the science and the uh, and the applications. The company where I'm working at now, um, DeepMind, it was it's only ten years old, and and it was ten years ago it was started as totally a startup entrepreneur like company, and it was looking for venture capital and 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 struggling and all all that stuff. Yeah, now it's a large endeavor. It's trying to keep the little bit of the startup mentality. Um, when research is good in industry, it can be very, very good. Now, what needs to happen is not just research or, or more applied research. Uh, if we look and look forward, see how uh, it can play a role. There, there are all there. There are a number of interesting developments in Edmonton. Alta ML is perhaps our our largest applied AI company. But there are a lot. There are a lot of small startups. Startups like Meadow AI that does medical applications. I, th I see startups playing a bigger role, and more targeted companies rather than large companies like AT and T. Right. Yeah. Well, let's stick with this theme of of thinking about the future, and let's kind of pull back and talk big picture. So something that you've shared in the past um, that you believe is going to be very important in the next decade is this idea of a learning system versus what we have now, which are learned systems. So can you explain the difference between learned and learning systems and also why you think learning systems are an important part of where things are moving in the field? Sure. I think this is a really intuitive idea that some of our most important machine learning systems are things that like uh, recognize our speech or can label uh, pictures. Uh, these, these, in all these cases, the system doesn't uh, doesn't learn when it's put in operation. When you talk to uh, Siri, uh, Siri doesn't learn your inflections or your uh, or how to how to recognize speech from your from its interaction with you. It, it learns it uh, in some prior. Uh, Phase when you when it saw enormous numbers of examples of of speech and and the correct transcription, and so yeah, we call it machine learning. So machine learning today is is how we come up with these skilled systems. But the systems after they've come into existence, they no longer learn. Right, and that's something that's going to change. Is that going to be as a result of introducing techniques like reinforcement learning, or is it because there are other techniques happening in machine learning that allow for that, or, or what's going to lead to that change? I think what will lead to it is a desire for customization and for more useful systems. If, 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 if your system can adapt to you as an individual, it can be more useful to you. So maybe the most important areas will be in user interfaces. And in some way, you know, the dream of uh, an assistant, an automated assistant, is really should be a customized system. If you have someone who helps you, you they should get to know what you want to do and how you like to do things. And um, that means it'll have to be a learned system, learning system, excuse me. Right, right. And so kind of consumer demand for it and uh, and just the, the desire to get a lot more personalized than, mm -hmm. than what we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. So reinforcement learning is, it can be done online, it can be done offline, uh, but it, it generally it, it learns, you know, the classic case of reinforcing learning, it learns online. But there are other forms of that could be learned online. Temporal difference learning is only part of reinforcement. It can be separated from it. And that, that is naturally done online. Right. 
I want to talk a bit more uh, philosophically, and you mentioned earlier about the importance of reflection, writing in your notebook. I also noticed that you're a sporadic blogger, which is somewhat noted in the title of your website, Incomplete Ideas. Um, and you've had some really interesting posts over the years, and I, I've read a number of them. And in the pieces that I've read, if, if I had to sum up um, kind of your philosophy um, towards AI systems, it would be get out of the way and let AI systems learn to experience the world. And that getting out of the way, coupled with Moore's Law, it seems to point towards um, contributing to this next big breakthrough towards human-level intelligence. I'm wondering if you think that is an accurate assessment of your philosophical approach to AI research, and, and how does that play out in practical or day-to-day -day terms for you? Well, I'm really uh, pleased that you've gotten this impression from my readings, because that, that is what I've tried to communicate, that we... Um, not not exactly get out of the way. We may have to help. We have to design algorithms or meta algorithms. We don't try to. I don't think the right the best strategy is to try to teach the machines to think the way we think, um, but to teach it not the contents of our thoughts. We should teach it the algorithms by which we discovered our thoughts. So it, well, maybe it will discover different thoughts. We'll discover them. We still have to write the algorithm the algorithms for discovery. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And kind of sticking with this thread a little bit, um, do you think that AI is about understanding human intelligence or is it about developing systems that can intelligently perform tasks? Or maybe it's about something else. Where do you kind of stand <laughs> on that? <laughs> well, I think AI, AI is artificial intelligence. I think we can drop the word artificial. Why don't we just study intelligence? Because... Who's to say who's artificial and who's who's real um, when it comes to intelligence? Um, so this topic, this topic is well, what is intelligence? Intelligence, in my mind, is uh, the ability, the computational part of the ability to achieve goals. So goals is, is the key element. So if we see systems that seem to be achieving goals, like a uh, a really good chess playing program or even a thermostat that achieves the goal of keeping your room at a constant temperature. Um, to the extent that we see them, see them as achieving goals, we might call them intelligent. And so then the task of, a, of studying intelligence is, 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 is both to understand natural intelligence and to uh, create intelligence that... Uh, by technological means. And so you can study either one of those two, um, and you don't have to do them together. You could do intelligence as a, as a technological ability without worrying about its relationship to natural intelligence. But I think it's, uh, it's, it's natural. It's natural to bring in the natural element. Uh, it's, it, it's very hard to figure out intelligence. Why don't we use natural intelligence as, a, as an existence proof and as, you know, inspiration pump to, to solve it. Many scientists, I think, are like I am, where we uh, like to think about natural intelligence. We don't feel constrained by it. We don't have to do it the way that does it, but it's a good uh, source of ideas and inspirations as we try to make uh, technological means that right. also can achieve goals. I kind of get the feeling that um, you're, you're sort of saying that humans have sort of centered themselves in terms of intelligence, we kind of put ourselves at the center of this word intelligence, and then everything is revolving around that. But yeah. I almost get the feeling you're wanting to shift that dynamic. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, 
that's that's exactly right. I hadn't quite thought about it that way. That's interesting. Hmm. I'm kind of wondering about something you've said in a past talk, uh, a world that is open to all persons, including AIs. How would we go about doing that? What do you think needs to change in our culture, our politics, our ethics in order to be <laughs> open to AIs as persons? Why can't we think that way? I do. What we are trying to do is understand what it be- means to be a person, what it means to, uh, to have goals, to have a life, to have desires and work towards them. And we, I think we will. I mean, so we're talking long-term future, but perhaps. But um, I think it's good for us to prepare for it you know, as soon as we can, to prepare for the idea that there might be um, created things, created beings that, that are similar to us, so, so similar that we cannot uh, dismiss them or consider them mere tools. The other analogy that I think we have to bring in is that they're not tools, but they're more like you know, offspring or children. And the, the motion of offspring and children um, does, is, brings up all of the, uh, the issues. Um, uh, you, you try to teach your children to have uh, good values, but it, ultimately you have to let them go and, and they, they will think differently than you do. And so I think we have to you know, be prepared to think that way also about machines. Yeah, it's a great point. And I, I think, A, that scares many people, I'm sure, um, in terms of um, allowing something to be completely independent. Um, and B, I, I have read some really interesting papers that bring um, a bit of an Indigenous perspective to AI and very much talk about the idea of kinship. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting way of of looking at things quite differently than perhaps how we usually frame them when we talk about AI. Yes, I, I think you're right on point. That how we relate to other people is is a closely related issue. Uh, how do we relate to issues? Well, we can think of them as kins. We can celebrate their successes, or we can you know think of them as opponents, and all their successes are against ours. This is a choice we've always, different peoples have always had to make when they meet other people. And I can't say that humanity has, has done really well with it overall, but I think there, there is a, a much preferred outcome, you know, where you get collaboration rather than uh, antagonistic relationships. Yeah, and the key is exactly what you mentioned. I think you have to see them as kin. So can you see the AIs as kin? So that you, if they... Play, really, play Go really well, can you celebrate that and say, well, look, look, look how well they've done and uh, they've succeeded at this good thing. Enjoy their success. Dr. Sutton, I just want to say thank you so much for being here today, for sharing your research and sharing your story. Thank you so much. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforSociety.ca and the Cool Institute at kias.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future 
by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforsociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com.